0: Thursday, March 15th, 2012, the Ides of March, supposedly the day when Julius Caesar was assassinated by the Roman Senate. At least that's how the story goes, but we won't be talking about that. (laughs) Ha ha! Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage, well, of really crazy, bad, terrible things being said about God, all in the name of, well, being relevant, of blurring what God's Word says, of being more inclusive, creating unity and things like that. Because after all, sound doctrine divides. And it does. It divides light from darkness, truth from error, revelation from speculation. We are not to engage in speculation. As Christians, we have a revealed religion. God has revealed himself. And our minds are to be transformed and renewed by what God has said. If you... Uh, read a biblical passage that contradicts what you believe, um, well, uh, you're wrong, not God's word. That's how that works. Yeah, see, in the pecking order of the cosmos, if you would, God's at the top. <laughs> I think the Calvinists refer to that as the sovereignty of God. He is the top dog, That the head honcho, the man in charge, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the king of kings, the lord of lords, that kind of thing. And uh, when he says something is a particular way or he does a particular thing or something is to be believed as if it happened this way, well, um, who are you to question God? Um, and But see, apparently in, uh, in evangelical circles nowadays, you know, one opinion is as good as another as long as you're having an experience of the divine and you're experiencing life change. Yeah, no, that's not how that works. So... So what we do here, we do the work of a Berean, we open up the biblical text, and, well, do some fact-checking, see if things actually line up, and where they do, we say amen and amen, and where they don't, we go, ugh, yeah. So today's going to be one of those, kind of, pro- <laughs> that's all I can say, it's going to be one of those, in fact, I really think before we get going, we need to do this today Oh, yeah. We're just going to dive right into it today. Going to start off with William Tapley's newest hit single, entitled Hail Mary, Hail Mary, as performed by William Tapley on his Casio. But let's do this first. It's the end of the world as we know it, it's the end of the world as we know it, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine, dun 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 dun, alright, yeah. That's our William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, uh, update music, uh, which I think is apropos for uh, William Tapley. Uh, from time to time, William Tapley, well, um, <clears throat> uh, he writes music. And um, we've covered some of uh, William Tapley's greatest hits here at Fighting for the Faith and premiered them as a means of audience enhancement. And so this is no uh, no different. Uh, uh, if there was ever an expert at the Casio William Tapley is that man. And so, um, without any further ado, we would like to premiere for you William Tapley's latest, newest hit single, Hail Mary, Hail Mary. Here's William Tapley, third eagle of the apocalypse. Can't wait to hear the chorus on this one.
1: Pray for us, sinners.
0: Ah, yes, never has Catholic False Doctrine ever been set so wonderfully on a Casio keyboard. Sorry, you know we're doing a world premiere here. That's right if you want to get on jesus's good side you go through his mother that's you know, how that works Men and then keeps going on. Full of grace. The
1: good Lord is with you, and blessed are you among women. And blessed
0: is the fruit of my wound. You know what's really weird? We're going to be reading from the Lucan account of the birth of Jesus. It's not Christmas, but it's funny that that's one of the texts we're going to be looking at today. Jesus. Sinners can't pray for themselves, you know, to Jesus. They got to go through his mother.
1: All right,
0: coming in for a landing here. Um, I think I'll try to do something a little bit more sane here. Um, from the Reuters news service, headline reads: "Banks foreclosing on U.S. churches in record numbers." <laughs> Wonder if it has something to do with that song. Dun dun dun! dun. All right, from the Reuters uh, news service, um, the the uh, article reads. Um, this is by Tim Reed, Los, Dateline Los Angeles, March 9th. Banks are foreclosing on America's churches in record numbers as lenders increasingly lose patience with religious facilities that have defaulted on their mortgages according to new data. I wonder if it's all these seeker-driven mega churches. At least mega church church plans that kind of thing. The surge in church foreclosures. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, while I twist my tongue into a knot here. The surge in church foreclosures represents a new wave of distressed property seizures, triggered by the 2008 financial crash. Analysts say, with many banks no longer willing to grant struggling religious organizations forbearance. Since 2010, 270 churches have been sold after defaulting on their loans with 90% of those sales coming after a lender triggered foreclosure, according to the real estate information company CoStar Group. In 2011, 138 churches were sold by banks, an annual record with no sign that these religious foreclosures are abating according to CoStar that uh, compares to just 24 sales in 2008 and only a handful in the decade before the church foreclosures have hit an have hit all denominations across America black white but with Small to medium-sized houses of worships are hit the worst. Most of these institutions have end up being purchased by other churches. The highest percentage have occurred in some of the states hardest hit by the uh, the home foreclosure crisis, including California, Georgia, Florida, and Michigan. Churches are moving the the final institutions to get foreclosed upon because banks have not wanted to look like they're being heavy-handed with the churches, said Scott Rolfs managing director of religious and education finance in the at the investment bank Ziegler church defaults differ from residential foreclosures most of the loans in in question are not 30-year mortgages but rather commercial loans that typically matured just after just 5 years when the full balance becomes due immediately it's common practice for banks to refinance such loans when they come due but banks have become increasingly reluctant to do that because of pressure from regulators to clean up their balance sheet, said Rolfs. A lot of these loans were given when the properties were evaluated at a at certain level in 2005 or 2006, Rolf said. Banks have had to reappraise uh, the value of these properties, whether it's a church or a commercial office building. Values have gone down, so the loans cannot continue in the same form. The factors leading to the boom... In church, foreclosures will sound familiar to many private homeowners evicted from their properties in recent years. During the property boom, many churches took out additional loans to refurbish or enlarge, often with major lenders or with evangelical Christian credit unions, which which was particularly aggressive in lending to religious institutions. Then after the financial crash, many churchgoers lost their jobs. Donations plunged, and and often so did the value of the church building. So congregations are in trouble. Solid Rock Christian Church near Memphis, Tennessee, took out a $2.9 million loan with the Evangelical Christian Credit Union at the beginning of 2008 to construct a new 2,000-seat, 3,400-square-foot building to house its growing congregation. In the middle of construction, the economy crashed. The church rated its savings to finish the project, but ended up defaulting on the loan. The ECCU foreclosed and put the church up for auction. Quote, we are still fighting this, the church spokesman told Reuters. We have filed for bankruptcy to stop this foreclosure and to restructure our debt. At the iconic Charles Street African American Episcopal Church in Boston, Massachusetts, Churchgoers and clergy accuse the bank of being unwilling to negotiate. The church is being threatened with foreclosure and a March 22 auction by its lenders. One United Bank, America's largest black-owned bank. The bank says the church, which was founded in 1818 and played a major role in the anti-slavery movement, has defaulted on a $1.1 million balloon loan that became due in December of 2011. The balloon loan is a long-term loan, often a mortgage that has a large or balloon payment due upon maturity. They often have very low interest payments and require little capital outlay during the life of the loan due to the large end payment. The church is also involved in separate litigation with One United involving a 2006 loan of $3.6 million that uh, that financed the refurbishment of the two buildings into a community center." We want to refinance, and we want to pay. It's doable. We have the means to do it, but we can only do it if they actually sit down and talk to us," said the Reverend Gregory G. Groover, Senior, the church's pastor. So, kind of a a new trend, you know. It it makes me wonder, you know, what do we to do with these uh, seeker-driven churches who claim they've got visions from God, you know, to expand, expand, expand. You know, grow, grow, grow. In fact, in our uh, sermon review in hour number two today, we're going to be listening to a vision casting sermon. It's actually, we're only going to be listening to one of them, but the sermon we're listening to is the first in a series of five vision casting sermons. Uh, Pre Cast? If it's a vision casting sermon, do you say it was preached or do you say it was cast? yeah I, I need to check the seeker driven um lexicon here to see what the correct construction of the sentence would be but uh the <laughs> so i'll just go with cast so chris songson cast five vision casting sermons in a row five weeks in a row and uh, basically uh hitting people up for uh, to the tune of 9 million dollars to fund the vision that apparently he received from god so we're going to be listening to sermon number 1 in that uh series today uh, during our sermon review time, so you're not going to want to miss that. Interesting stuff, but um, you know what? I'm I'm looking at my time here. I'm going to really quickly, what we're going to do here, I'm just looking at the two things I want to do for the remainder of this hour, and I think it's best if we go to a, uh, a break real quick, pay some bills, and when we come back, we got uh, kind of a two-pronged emergent update. On uh, on the other side of the break, and we're going to be looking at a Telegraph story where an, uh, an academic in the UK is claiming that Jesus may have been a hermaphrodite. No kidding, and uh, and then we're going to be listening to audio from uh, Miros- Miroslav Volf's appearance on Doug Paget's radio program. Doug was out of town, and Emergent uh, theologian and Fuller professor, Fuller Theological Seminary professor, Doug uh, uh, Tony Jones, Doctor Tony Jones. He and uh, Miroslav Volf had a conversation about how Allah and uh, the uh, and the God of Christianity are really the same God. So while Rick Warren and the gang is doing everything they can to cover up this Kingsway concept, well, along comes Miroslav Volf talking about his new book, Allah, that's the name of his book, Allah, with uh, Tony Jones of the Emergent Church claiming that uh, Jews, uh, Muslims, and uh, Christians all worship the same God, so you're not going to want to miss that. Now if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's Facebook dot com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. We will be right back.
2: Sisyoprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate
1: Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. ha, ha, ha. Don's Flying Circus Church.
0: You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio.
3: You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball Match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics.
0: Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quandos Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off.
3: McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and...
0: Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field.
3: But wait! Uruz Weber is charging from the 10-yard line,
0: and she slammed Dugs from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court.
3: It looks like Jones and Paget are double-teeing Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough.
0: McLaren is there to make the safety, but Paget grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pommel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing.
3: Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points.
0: Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. We're back. Warning. Christianity follows what's revealed in God's word, not what theologians speculate God is like. There's a big difference between revelation and speculation. Know the difference. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to post office box 508-508. Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern philharmonic orchestra. And that rendition of also Sprak, Zarathustra, by Strauss. Set free from the limiting definitions of modernist notes, they now play postmodern notes and let the spirit move them. Brings tears to my eyes. And here comes the big finale. Bravo, bravo! All right, yeah. Uh, you know, so that's to uh, announce. Uh, we're going to kind of do a twin focus here on uh, uh, emergent update. The the first comes to us via a news story from the Telegraph in the UK. The uh, headline reads: Jesus may have been a hermaphrodite, claims academic. Really, I you know, wow. So somehow you know, thousands, two thousand years after the fact, we can speculate that Jesus was a hermaphrodite. If you don't know what that is, you might want to look it up. But when you do the Google sh- search, turn the images off. That's all I'm saying. <clears throat> These, uh, this is written by John Bingham, the religious affairs editor there at uh, at the Telegraph in the UK. And he writes, Dr. Susanna Cornwall claimed that it is simply a a best guess that Jesus was male. Really? <laughs> so we, it was a best guess just a you know looking back 2000 years after the fact you know it's you know our best guess is that jesus was a dude okay you know he may have been he may have been something else but you know it's only a best guess that uh, jesus was male her comments which are bound to provoke fury in some quarters were published in response to the ongoing debate about women bishops in the church Church of England, Dr. Cornwall of Manchester University's Lincoln Theological Institute describes herself on her blog as specializing in, quote, research in ri- and writing in feminist theology, sexuality, gender, embodiment, ethics, and other fun things like that. In other words, she hasn't got a clue. <laughs> she hasn't got a clue uh, what sound doctrine is, and, and, and she might know what it is, but she flat out rejects it, is, is all I got to say. So here's the deal. Okay, this uh, runs into a common problem. Okay, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Dr. Susanna Cornwall, who is into fun things like feminist theology, sexuality, gender, and embodiment, and ethics, and stuff like that, Or are you going to believe somebody who took the time to, well, interview the eyewitnesses regarding Jesus? Now, you're sitting there going, really? We have that kind of data? As a matter of fact, we do. If you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel according to Luke. Uh, you know, katalukan, if you would, and go to chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm going to point a few things out to you. We're going to do a quick survey, and it's going to sound like we're reading from the Christmas text before too long, and we will be, but I want to point out something here, and that is is that Luke, well, Dr. Luke, but yes, he was a doctor. Isn't that funny? So we got Dr. Luke versus Dr. Cornwall. Uh, Dr. Corney, if you ask me, but uh, here's what Dr. Luke writes at the beginning of his account. He writes, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed to me it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught okay so so Luke begins his uh, his his account of the story of Jesus by making a note of the fact that uh, he's writing an orderly account based upon eyewitness testimony flat out plain and simple and the, uh, the you know the, there's just no way to overthrow this the, luke's account is early it's first century pa- the apostle paul liked this particular gospel and used it in his missionary journeys according to church uh, church history, which would make sense, especially given the we sections of the book of Acts, where Luke, in part two of his account, uh, basically tells the story of, you know, how the church got going. And it was clear based on how he was writing it in the we sections that he was eyewitnesses to many of the things going on there. And so we know Luke is early. It's got to be early. It, it's got to be really early. Oh, in fact, so early that uh, he wrote this while Both, uh, you know, positive eyewitnesses and hostile eyewitnesses were alive and could have refuted what he said, okay? So let's now fast forward just a little bit, same chapter, Luke chapter 1, and what we're going to do is look at starting at verse 26, okay? Now, who do you think, just, I'm going to ask the question, who do you think Luke got this information from? I'll give you the answer shortly, but... Let's uh, let's take a look at what's going on here. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, this is the sixth month after Elizabeth had conceived uh, John the Baptist. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end okay so according to luke who interviewed eyewitnesses an angel from god appeared and the virgin mary conceived and who she conceived well would he would be a son and he would inherit the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Any indication here that Jesus, that it's just kind of a best guess that Jesus was a guy? Any indication here? Now, the question I'm asking is, who do you think um, Luke got this information from? I'll give you the answer in a minute. So Mary said to the angel, "Well, how will this be since I'm a virgin?" And the angel answered her, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be uh, to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren." for nothing will be impossible with god and mary said behold i am the servant of the lord let it be to me according to your word and the angel departed from her okay any indicator based upon the pronouns there that jesus was a uh, you know less than male well if you were thinking that there's no i mean best guess i mean this according to susan cornwall best guess is that he was a guy that's just our best guess Well, again, I ask the question, who do you think um, Luke got this information from? I'll answer in a minute, but... Now, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, this should sound familiar to you. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David." to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. now, Now, I understand that Mary and Joseph were first century folks. They did not have... The uh, the luxury of attending a 21st century public education, you know, get a first 21st century public school education in the United Kingdom or in the United States. And as a result of it, hasn't they haven't taken 21st century anatomy classes and things like that. And so, I mean, is it possible here that what really happened here is, is that they were well, they were just being old school and kind of country bumpkins, if you were, you know, chronological rubes, if you would, and mistakenly thought that they had given birth to us, you know, that Mary had given birth to a son. I'm pretty sure that back then they figured out how to tell whether a child was male or female. I'm fairly certain of this. You know, now, again, I may be speaking out of school here, but <clears throat> we continue Now let's continue with the story so we can kind of get the uh, the gist of it uh, it's great fantastic story again Luke uh, compiled this by speaking with eyewitnesses so who do you think he spoke to to get this information Luke chapter 2 verse 8 says in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear and the angel said to them fear not for behold I am I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people for unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior who is christ the lord and this will be a sign for you you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising god and saying glory to god in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased Here's the answer to the question How did Luke figure this out? How did he get this information? Answers found here in verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Luke got this information directly from Mary herself because she was still alive. In fact, church history tells us that the Apostle John made good his promise to Jesus. Jesus told John while he was being crucified, and he told Mary. Mary was there. John and Mary were at the foot of the cross, and Jesus looks at Mary and says to her, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Right? And John cared for Mary as if she were his own mother. And, And when he was the bishop of Ephesus, after Paul had planted the churches in Ephesus... Mary traveled with her, church uh, history tells us. So Luke got this information from Mary herself. So Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Now watch this. At the end of eight days, when he, Jesus, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Okay, now, I understand that Mary was a first century, you know, rube from, you know, Nazareth, and she didn't have the luxury of 21st century science classes and stuff like that, but if Jesus uh, wasn't a male, um the obvious question is is then what did they have circumcised because he was circumcised according to the law of Moses the law of Moses didn't allow for females to be circumcised in fact female circumcision is a horrible deplorable practice and it's not taught in scripture okay so they had Jesus circumcised no fig leaves there. No mystery whatsoever. According to the eyewitness, um, Jesus was, well, a man. And uh, now, 2,000 years later, Susanna Cornwall, an academic, claims that it's just simply a best guess that Jesus was a male. Mm-hmm. Well, let's continue with what she writes here. Dr. Cornwall In her paper, Intersex and Ontology, a response to the church, women, bishops, and provisions, she argues that it is not possible to know with any certainty that Jesus did not suffer from an intersex condition with both male and female organs. Hmm, no mention of those by by the eyewitnesses at all. In fact, we do know about the male organ and how it was circumcised eight days after he was born according to the law of Moses. Strange, isn't that? Now in an extraordinary paper she says it's not possible to assert with any degree of certainty that Jesus was male as we now define maleness there's no way of knowing for sure that Jesus did not have one of the intersex conditions which would give him a body which appeared externally to be unremarkably male but which might nonetheless have had some hidden female physical features Yeah so here's the deal let me let me ex- explain how this works okay um, Dr. Cornwall, um, you have to actually provide us with evidence. You, yeah, that's what you have to do. See, just simply saying, "Oh, well, there's no way to know," um, flies in the face of what we do know, because you know Mary knew and made a point of making a note of the fact that well, they had him uh, and uh, circumcised on the eighth day after he was born. So I think we can know with, like, uh, 100% certainty that Jesus was a dude and that, well, he didn't have any hidden female qualities to him. Um, and you come along 2,000 years later as if you've discovered something, and all, the only thing you've really discovered Is well your own innards. This is all just speculation on your part. It doesn't even rise to the uh, evidence that could be presented in a court case, you know. To you know, at all. I mean, these are just the inner rumblings of your own dark and wretched, sinful heart. This is idolatry uh, of the highest and worst degree, and it's blasphemous, because, good doctor Luke, a doctor by the way, um. In interviewing the eyewitnesses, it recorded for us the story regarding Jesus' maleness and what happened to it eight days after he was born. And it flies straight in the face of what you're saying, so we can know with certainty regardless of what it is that you say. Moving along, I would like to now share with you audio from a recent interview that Miroslav Volf did with... Uh, Dr. Tony Jones of the Emergent Church, Dr. Tony Jones, who teaches at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, Dr. Tony Jones of, you know, of Emergent Fame. And listen, while we've been covering, uh, well, the Kingsway cover-up, while all that's been going on, well, there's Rick Warren doing everything he can to say, no, 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 Muslims and, and and Christians don't worship the same God. That's not what we're up to here at Saddleback. Well, while that's been going on, a conversation took place over the weekend in uh, the Twin Cities in Minnesota uh, between Tony Jones and Miroslav Volf discussing Miroslav Volf's latest book entitled Allah. Yeah, listen in get
4: my visa and come into the country but that's a great that story is a, is a good backdrop for your latest book uh, which is getting a lot of buzz and getting a lot of people talking because um, well it's a provocative title from a christian theologian and the title of the book is allah or allah how how should we say that I didn't just say allah allah the title yeah. of a book by a christian theologian is the muslim <laughs> title for god now that's a, that, that's a risky endeavor for a a, a Christian theologian are, to. Write are you trying this. to get out of your contract at the seminary, there, Dr. <laughs> Volf? <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, no, the school will, will, will let me get, get away with uh, with all sorts of things. But you know, I'm, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, I, I have garnered some unpopularity with the book, but uh, also on the other hand, a lot of people have responded really positively uh, to it. I mean, relationship between Islam and Christianity is one of the uh, great issues of the 21st century. You just have to do the numbers and know that that's the case. You know, there are 1.7 billion Muslims and 2.2 2 billion Christians. 60% of each of these groups don't like each hmm. other. This is 2.2 2 billion people not liking each other just on account of their faith and maybe a few other things.
4: Yeah, I. I, I that is... Th- That is such a poignant uh, list of numbers, because I I was going to say, I don't know that there's a more significant issue for Christians in the West to deal with right now than the antipathy between Christians and Muslims and what's interesting you know you bring obviously a a personal biography to this book that no one else can bring and you're you know a Christian theologian in the West at one of the premier uh, uh, academic institutions in the world but uh, as you've written about in previous books as well you grew up in uh, under Soviet rule you grew up in a, a majority Muslim country and you're but here's what's interesting I think about this book you've dedicated it to your father who was an evangelical Pentecostal Minister what yeah, but who taught you that Muslims and Christians are worshiping the same God now that that I think that would come as a surprise to a lot of readers that
3: might come as a surprise to a lot of uh, a lot of readers, uh, though uh, just a slight correction. Uh, it was not a majority Muslim country, but there's a significant uh, Muslim minority uh, where I grew up in former former Yugoslavia. Um, and there's a long history, five hundred years of occupation of those lands by uh, by Muslims. I myself was born uh, within the walls of a fortress that was, and lived first five years of my life in the walls of a fortress that was built.
0: Notice, he did not say, wait, 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 correction. No, 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 I, I'm not saying that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. That's not what he's correcting. He's, yeah, that's what he believes.
3: In order to uh, forestall uh, further uh, Turkish, Turkish advances. Uh, you know, mm. so I very much know what the experience of, uh, Turkish, uh, and therefore Muslim also, uh, oppression is, but also there is a there is a um, good history of coexistence uh, there. You know, my father uh, learned to know Muslims because he worked for them, and he told me, you know, he's, uh, what? he was about 65 or so after he had spent most of his life as a Pentecostal minister, he told me, myself, the best man for whom I've ever worked was a Muslim man. Mm. So he both understood what it means to be oppressed by Muslims, but he also understood what it means to encounter and have as friends, as his bosses, uh, people, Muslims, who are extraordinary human beings. You
0: know? Now, I want to point something out here. This is where the uh, the classic distinction between quorum deo and quorum habinibus uh, really becomes important. Okay, uh, When we say that Muslims... Do not worship the God who is revealed in Scripture, but an idol of Muhammad's making. Are we saying then that there are no such things as Muslims who are capable of good civic righteousness that before their neighbor can exhibit, well, good qualities and maybe even be more morally upstanding than you know a, a fellow Christian? Well, the answer is is that when we say that, we're not saying that uh, that, that means that they're all a band of brigands who want to, uh, to kill you. It, it, that's not what we're saying. And so here's the idea. Notice how this argumentation works. Well, there's good Muslims out there. <gasps> that must mean they worship God, right? Wrong. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So the idea is, is that as we compare ourselves to each other— morally. okay. It's, think of this as you a know, second table of the law. There's two tables. The first table deals with our relationship before God, quorum deo. Second table between uh, you know, basically how our interactions are with other human beings. So the idea, that's quorum hominibus. So watch how this argument works in. Well, the best person I ever worked for, most moral guy I ever worked for, most outstanding guy I ever worked for was a Muslim. Therefore he must believe the same God that I believe in, doesn't logically follow. Okay? Human beings are capable, if all we're doing is comparing ourselves to each other... Uh, people who do not believe in in the God that is revealed in Scripture are capable of doing morally upstanding things. This does not prove that they have a good relationship before God because our right standing before God is not determined by how good we are because none of us can meet the requirements of God's law. That's why quorum deo, we only stand before God on account of what Christ has done for us on the cross. So first point here is, well best guy I've worked for was that my dad ever worked for was a Muslim. Therefore, he must believe in the same God I do. Faulty logic.
3: Uh, and it's in this environment, you know, that I grew up and shaped my own thinking about uh, Islam and Christianity. It's above all just to look at what's before us uh, rather than come with prejudice.
4: Now, you've, uh, you've come to a, in this book, you've come to a, a conclusion. As a Christian theologian, you've concluded that the God of Islam and the God of Christianity are, if are the same, or are, in your term, sufficiently similar. So there's there's some threshold of similarity that's been reached that it, it, that Christians and Muslims are worshiping, praying to,
0: talking about, theologizing about the same God. How- now, no, notice how we came to this. The, well, the, the evidence shows that there's sufficient similarity. Okay, this doesn't work. Okay. <clears throat> I'll explain why. Okay, let's just say there's somebody out there who, for whatever reason, um, maybe they're cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, seems to think that I'm actually Abraham Lincoln. Now, listen, I, I I get it. Okay, Abraham was Abraham Lincoln was tall and skinny. I'm the opposite, but you know, hey, the person, you know, this person thinks that yeah, there's good reason to believe that Roseboro. And Abraham Lincoln are actually the same guy, okay? And here's their reasoning. Check this out. They're both white. Well, that's true, okay? Um, Roseboro sports a beard. Abraham Lincoln sported a beard. Yeah, this is true, too. Um, now, mine's a goatee. He had a different... Uh, but, you know, he had different varying styles of his uh, of his facial hair. This is true. Uh, Roseboro uh, is a firm believer that the Constitution of the United States really represents... The best way to govern human beings, and so did Abraham Lincoln. It, this is true. Uh, when Roseboro cuts his finger, he bleeds red blood. So did Abraham Lincoln. Now, I mean, they had—they basically grew up in the same country, right? In the United States of America. Okay, uh, so you know, there's sufficient similarity between the two that we can, can come to the conclusion that Chris Roseboro is, in fact, the 16th president of the United States. You're going, this is insanity, right, of course it is, because when this kind of this this argument that Miroslav Wolf is laying out there's sufficient similarity. all he's doing is pointing out the similarities, but the thing is is that when you look at the differences, the differences tell the story, okay, and you know the the God who is supposedly the god of uh, Islam, he is not triune. The God of Scriptures, the God of the Christian Bible, uh, of Old and New Testament, is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? Allah doesn't have a son. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. Uh, uh, Jesus Christ, according to Islam, didn't die on the cross for our sins. Um, well, the, the eyewitness testimony of the life of Jesus Christ tells us that he died on, on the cross for our sins. He was crucified and he was raised again on the third day bodily from the grave. So this argument at this point, we start with, well, look at the best person my dad ever worked for was a Muslim. And now what we're doing is we're coming to the conclusion that there's sufficient similarity that lends the idea that, that Allah and Yahweh are, are, are in fact the same gods. And all this is is obfuscation. And it's done under the guise of high Ivy League religious school, uh, well, academic arguments here. I mean, Miroslav Wolf has a Ph.D. in theology, and so does Dr. Tony Jones. Ph.D. in the in fact, Miroslav Wolf is one of his mentors. But this is just the emperor has no clothes kind of silly su- stuff going on here. How did you come to that conclusion? Because that,
4: I think, would you say, is that that's the really the pivot point of your argument of how Christians and Muslims can start to get along better?
3: Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's quite correct. <clears throat> uh, I, I think it's uh, if you ask, is it the same object that we worship, quote unquote, object? There, uh, response certainly has to be uh, yes, uh, and I'll explain why. <clears throat> If you ask, are, do we understand God in exactly the same No, what's
0: really weird to me is, is that the goal is the same as the peace plan. Muslims and Christians get along together better. That's the goal. So we're going to highlight the similarities in the deity to the point where Miroslav Volf is saying that, uh, well, the Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Same goal and objective as the peace plan. And you're, if you listen carefully, you're going to hear some of the same points highlighted by Miroslav Volf, as what was highlighted by Abraham Muleberg and Jihad Turks' uh, uh, King's Way document. Listen in. in
3: way, the same way, uh, the response must be no. Do we understand God in a sufficiently similar way so that we can get along, so that we have these ultimate values that are represented in God, that God gives foundation to, that are sufficiently similar responses? Yes, and that's the significance, I think, of uh what I was trying to do, but think about it uh, uh, this way: Muslims and Christians uh, believe that God is one. Muslims and Christians believe that they God
0: believe that God is one. Does that language sound familiar to you?
3: God created the world. Muslims and Christians believe that God is different from the world. Now, if Muslims and Christians were to point to being to something to God, would they point to different things to the to the same thing? Who? Hmm. Agree with these three propositions, it follows by logic that they will be pointing to the same object. And so. No, goal-
0: it doesn't follow by logic because all you've done is suppress the differences. All you've done is highlight the similarities and suppress the differences. This doesn't logically follow. And just saying that it logically follows doesn't mean that it does. This is academic dishonesty.
3: Objects of worship are the same. And then so you ask yourself, is the moral character sufficiently similar? Muslims embrace Ten Commandments uh, as Christians do. Muslims encourage uh, their believers to uh, worship God, love God with their hearts, and serve God. We do.
0: Notice the same points here. Same points as in the King's Way document. Same points as in the Christian response to a common word between us. Interesting.
3: Muslims uh, speak about loving one's neighbor. I think uh, we have similar sets of moral characteristics of that one God as well, so that we can say that we worship the same God. And you know, the situation is somewhat similar to the situation which we have in relationship to Judaism. Mm-hmm. Do Jews and Christians worship the same God? Well, the response is yes. Do they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? No. Do they believe that God is the Holy Trinity? Mm-hmm. No.
0: Right. So the God of Judaism is not this current modern day. Judaism is not the same as the God of Christianity. And Jesus says without if you don't have the son, you don't have the father. Plain and simple.
3: Does that mean that we don't worship the same God as the Jews? No, it doesn't. We worship the same God.
4: What's interesting, it's interesting that you say that because I think even, um, you know, a lot of progressive liberal Christians would agree that, yeah, Islam and Christianity worship the same God. They might feel a little discomfort with that. They don't quite understand Islam the way they understand Judaism. But evangelicals, a lot of them have no problem saying that the God of Judaism and the God of Christianity are the same, but they just can't bring themselves to say the same thing about Islam.
0: Yeah, yeah you, you wonder what, what's causing that particular hitch. Oh, I know. Yeah, it's the, the, the definition of God in the Quran that he doesn't have a son, and that Jesus wasn't crucified for our sins. Jesus is a mere prophet, not the God-man. God... The father doesn't, uh, well, Allah doesn't have a son. He doesn't beget any, yeah, see, the details matter. All you're doing is highlighting the similarities and suppressing the differences, and you can't come to the conclusion that Christianity and Islam worship the same God unless you're purposely suppressing evidence. Are, are, there,
4: are there practices you think that the, that the Christian church can undertake
0: to bridge that gap? Why would they want to bridge the gap? That's blasphemy.
3: Well, I think the practices that uh, that we need is we, what we need is knowledge of the other uh, of the other side of the other person. We need encounter with flesh and blood, uh, devout Muslims uh, and uh, and devout Christians. Uh, you know, my own uh, journey uh, started, of course, with my father uh, opening my eyes to both see the the positive and the negative. Uh, uh, in in Islam, just as in, in as one sees in Christianity, uh, and still embrace Christian faith as a faith that I think is the true faith. Uh, but I think that uh, that journey has led me also then to uh, to meet Muslim uh, people, to spend time with Muslim uh, people, to discuss spiritual matters with Muslim uh, people. You know, and I've had uh, amazing uh, experiences um, and. Uh,
0: yeah and those experiences somehow trump what God has revealed in his word.
3: These experiences have also shaped uh, my own thinking because I realized that these people. yeah,
0: so these experiences uh, actually have they way heavier than what God has revealed in his word.
3: take seriously many of the convictions, many of the of motivating factors in my own life they they have them also. That doesn't mean we agree, but it means that there there are affinities that ought to be honored. You know, when I was uh, in um, Abu Dhabi after spending a day with with one of the Muslim clerics, um, and we talked about our differences as well, uh, and he knows of all the differences, you know, he reached out in his pocket and gave me his prayer beads and said, Miroslav, I have discovered in you my spiritual brother. Please have these prayer beads. And I felt honored. And what I did with those prayer beads, I used them to pray. I prayed my Christian prayers, but every single time I prayed, I thought of him and prayed for him as well. Wow! You know, this, this is kind of a spiritual encounter that can that can
0: open one's eyes. Notice the spiritual encounter now is the is where we go to find truth regarding the eternal God, and the spiritual encounter is contrary to what God's word says. So we can God's word and go with the spiritual experience in the encounter. This is very postmodern.
3: Uh, and uh, we can be who we are, yeah. and yet we can honor another person, open ourselves up uh, to them, and uh, foster good relationship with them.
4: It's, that's such, it's challenging at, at intellectual and spiritual levels. We're on with Miroslav Wolf, His new book is Allah, A Christian Response. And we'll be back with him again after the break.
0: You're listening to AM 950. The... Okay, we're done. Boy, do we live in dangerous times. So, I mean, while Rick Warren is trying to get as far away from having to admit that this is what was going on at Saddleback as humanly possible to the point of, well, having evidence disappear from the Internet. while Tony Jones, uh, Dr. Tony Jones of the Emergent Church, who, you know, basically, you know, in his early career was working very closely with seeker driven churches like Willow Creek and Saddleback and Leadership Network folks. He was part of Leadership Network. Uh, that, uh, you know, now he's a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, and he's there. They are. They're affirming that uh, Allah and the the God that Christians pray to and worship is the same God. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Does anyone have a bunker they want to sell me somewhere? <laughs> That's all I can say. I'm trying to figure out how to get out of the way of what is coming down the track because nothing good is going to be coming of this. This is a mess, an absolute theological mess. This is not the truth. These are satanic lies. All right, we are up on our second break. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. We'll be right back. Vision Casting Sermon Review coming up from South Hills Church in Corona, California. Don't want to miss it.
4: We don't need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
0: Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... <laughs> Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. I know you all have been dying to hear Chris Songson do some vision casting. Wait till you hear what he does with the Bible in this sermon. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via South Hills Church, Corona, California. Chris songson presiding. This is sermon number one in their 432 vision casting sermon series. A five-part sermon vision casting sermon series that they just concluded there at South Hills. And you're going, vision casting, what's that? Great question. I have no idea. It's not taught in the Bible. This is somehow some kind of strategic planning. Chris Songson, who's received in his own heart nudges and visions and dreams from God as to where to take South Hills Church a seeker-driven, purpose-driven church in Corona, California. By the way, Chris Songson was a while ago on staff at Saddleback, so he learned all this purpose-driven vision-casting stuff from the folks there at Saddleback and from Rick Warren's methodologies. Rather than try to describe it to you, here's another example of really, really bad, not-biblical... Teaching made to look like it's biblical in order to justify, well, making a commitment, commitment to raise over nine million dollars over the next few years there at um, South Hills Church. Yeah, let me kill the music here. So, without any further ado, here is Chris Songson in part one of his vision five part five part vision casting sermon series entitled 432 here we go
2: well good morning hey it's so good to have you here I want to welcome you to South Hills Church and I also want to welcome all those who are watching on our online campus this is the uh, service that is uh, recorded for our online campus in case you don't know so uh, it is good to have you here I want to welcome you to South Hills Church we are getting ready to kick off a brand new series called 432 it's more than a series though it is about the future of South Hills and where we're headed for the next couple of years. And it is going to be an absolutely amazing day today and an amazing service for the next few weeks. You're going to want to make sure to be a part of that. Hey, uh, so grab your little paper there, get ready. If you got a Bible, go to Numbers chapter 13. And, uh, hey, by the way, Giants, are they the ones?
0: Yeah, Numbers chapter 13. You can obviously tell the first part of the sermon series was done on Super Bowl Sunday. But, um, again, Numbers chapter 13, flip on over there if you have your Bible.
2: Well, not a lot of fans here, i got to be honest with you. Patriots, are they the ones? And how many people could absolutely care less? Oh, but you'll still be watching it and eating food. Don't act like you don't care, you've got plans for the day. Hey, awesome. Well, hey, it is so good to have you here. Hey, uh, let me tell you a little uh, uh, story as we get into this. And here's how the story goes. About 3,000 years ago, maybe a little bit more than that,
0: there was this guy named Moses. Now, Moses was a guy that God had put... Now, just so you know, this is his attempt at trying to recap the story of Moses and the children of Israel in the Exodus. After hearing this, ask yourself this question. Does he really even know what this story teaches and says? Fair question. Listen in.
2: ...put in his heart to free these people called the Israelites from slavery... Now, the Israelites, there was about a million of them, and they were caught in slavery by the Egyptians. So the Egyptians were slave owners to the Israelites, and God put it in the heart of Moses to free them. So he went and he grabbed the million people, and they snuck out of the camp. I don't know how you sneak a million people out of a camp.
0: Really? So (laughs) I don't recall that part of the story. Do you all remember? You know the story of the Exodus, right? Even if you haven't read it in the uh, book of Exodus, well, you may know the story from like some of the animated features. I mean, have you ever seen, you know, the Ten Commandments? Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> or uh, what was the one that Steven St- Spielberg did a few years ago? I forget, but uh, he did a, a feature length animated version of the story of the Exodus. And I don't recall in either the book of Exodus uh the 10 commandments uh the movie or uh or the Steven Spielberg animated thing that they did uh i don't recall of the part where millions of people go shh, and then ding 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 slip out of egypt and sneak out no actually there was a showdown you you familiar with the concept of the plagues of egypt uh, there was a showdown between Yahweh, that's the God of the Hebrews, that's actually the only God that exists, period, and Pharaoh, the God-King, the the God-Emperor of Egypt, so to speak, and... Um, the whole thing about let my people go and then no, and then, and then, you know, like the Nile turns to blood and then there's gnats and then there's frogs and then there's darkness and then there's hail and lightning and thunder and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Well, the final plague is the killing of the firstborn, the Passover, you know, where the children of Israel, their firstborn would be killed too, except for they took a, a spotless lamb and killed it and took the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorpost of their home and the, yeah all that kind of stuff um hardly a you know nothing sneaky about any of that i mean it that that is probably the worst example of sneakiness that i have ever heard in the bible i mean i at the end of this pharaoh practically kicks them out of egypt you know that's it, it, there was no sneaking going on it makes me wonder if um chris Songson has even read the book of exodus
2: but I guess they did. And they snuck the million people out of the camp and they began to, to leave uh, to get free from slavery. True story. And what happened was, is as they were going through... Uh,
0: yeah, true story, except for the part about them sneaking out.
2: Uh, this slavery or getting out of slavery, there was a lot of adventures that they had to go to because God had promised these people... That they wouldn't have to live in slavery anymore, but that they would actually go
0: to this place called the promised land. Mm-hmm, the promised land. So they, they they had to sneak out of Egypt, have these adventures, and then go to the promised land. <laughs> this doesn't really sound like anything I've read in the Bible. I mean, the kind of. Maybe the Hollywood version of it. Maybe that's the problem, is it? Corona, California is so close to Hollywood that maybe he's come up with his own Hollywood re-scripting of the story.
2: Wait a minute, what's it called? The what? Okay, now the promised land was really big for these people because they were in slavery. It had flowing with milk and honey and there was food and grapes. The, the Bible records that grapes were so big it took two people to carry them. And it was an amazing place. Now, in that venture of being freed from slavery as they went along over the months climbing, trying to find this place called the Promised Land, there were a lot of miracles. Miracle number one, they were coming along and they came up against the Red Sea. The Egyptians were a few miles back and they thought, well, we, uh, we can't cross this Red Sea
0: and yet the armies behind us, what a- yeah, Apparently the armies of Egypt thought... Have- where, where, did all the, where did all the Israelites go? Where are all those Hebrews? Where's our slaves? I know those wascally slaves. They snuck out in the middle of the night. Let's go get them. What are we going to do? God opens up the Red Sea. They walk through it,
2: dries up the land. They walk through it, and then it, water comes back down and crushes the, uh, the Egyptian, the evil people that were kind of slave owners, and kind of crushed them. And they yeah, got- the evil slave owners. They were like the south got to the other side. Miracle number one. Miracle number two showed up when they ran out of food. And so God started raining down from heaven manna. They would wake up in the morning and there would be food on the ground. How many would like for you to wake up every morning and your refrigerator's just full because God took care of it? Isn't that all? Yeah. Now we're all believers. Okay. Uh, I got a little kid right in his hand. Uh, I want some gummies. Um, now the other thing is, is it started raining down manna. And they even complained about that, because you know how human beings are. We like to complain about things. They were like, how much things can you do with manna? You know, manna bread, manna burgers, manna cotti. They were running out of stuff to do with this manna stuff. But God provided it. Then they came to this water. They needed some water, and they came to this place called Mara, which means bitter, and they went to it, and they said, well, the water is bitter, God, and God purified the water. Then now they can drink the water. Then all of a sudden they were walking along, and they didn't know which way to go, so a cloud started
0: leading them. And then at night the cloud would disappear. They didn't know where to go. They were just wandering aimlessly, I mean, on their adventure between slavery and the Promised Land. you know, And, you know, they... Which way do we go? The road goes like in three different directions. What shall we do? And all of a sudden, this cloud shows up and says, follow me. Fear and a fire would show up and it'd start leading them. Another
2: miracle. They finally get to this place called the Promised Land. It's on the other side of the mountain. The
0: main leader goes over and tells these 12 guys, hey, you... you guys you left the whole part about them grumbling against God about them having everybody who was you know basically of adult age at that time dying in the wilderness because of unbelief, you know, <laughs> hey, and so what happens is is that. You know they snuck out of Egypt, and then the the evil slave owners, the kind of people that kind of like own sort of kind of slaves. This is Chris Songson's way. They they and they came up against the Red Sea, and the slave owners go, "Hey, where'd our slaves go? Slaves go. They must have snuck out. Let's go chase them." And then all of a sudden, the water parted, and the chil- and the and the children of Israel crossed on dry land. And then all of a sudden, bad things happened to the slave owners, and they got crushed in the water. And then they were wandering through the wilderness, and they ran out of food. So God gave them food, and then they got lost, and so this this pillar of smoke showed up and and showed them which way to go, and then the promised land was just on the other side of the mountain. Uh Uh-huh. If you tend like your spies, go over there and scout out the land. Make sure it's good for us. They
2: came back, and they said, oh, man, that land is awesome. It is flowing with milk and honey, and there's big old grapes and food, and man, this is awesome, but... There are these big warriors there, and we're afraid of these warriors. Now, you
0: would think, if you were one of the spies, this is what I would think, I would think... Yeah, the spies that went out to spy the land, one from each tribe, there were 12 in all. Ten of them had no faith. Two of them believed the promises of God. Think of the names Joshua and Caleb. Those, Those names come to mind. Or maybe, hopefully, you would do the same thing. If God did all these miracles, you would think
2: after God did all these miracles that when we looked and we saw all the giants, we would just think, no big deal, God did all these miracles. He could sure do this one here, but they didn't do that. In Numbers chapter 13, picking up at verse 30, let's take a look at what they said. Now Caleb, he was one of the spies, tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land. We can certainly conquer it. Moses or Caleb was like, hey, there's giants over there, but God's done amazing things. We can take care of this. But look what the rest of the people said. But the other men who had explored the land, the other spies with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are what? Say it out loud with me. They are stronger stronger than we are. So they, so they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. Cause that's what, you know, you do. You go around and spread a bunch of bad word and get everybody real negative. And then the land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. So here's what happens. God did miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And then they face this big situation like that's the promised land. That's what God said he would give us. But there are big warriors there, and we can't take them out. And they began to shriek back. We are launching today a five-week series, and for the next five weeks, we are going to unpack
0: the vision of South Hills for
2: the next two years. And I need you to... Oh,
0: man. Vision of South Hills for the next two years. I had no idea that Numbers Chapter 13 had anything to do with the vision of South Hills or about vision casting at all. Um... Let's, you know what, let's do a little biblical teaching here. If you have your Bible in your, you should already be at Numbers 13. Um, you, you'll notice he really kind of left out all of the important stuff. And there's a resolution to the story that takes place in Numbers 14, at least, well, resolution as far as how does this all play out in the grander scheme. But, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. And these were their names, from the tribe of Ruman, uh, uh, Reuben, sorry, Shemua, the, the son of Zakur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, from the tribe of Issachar, Igal, the son of Joseph, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun, from the tribe of uh, Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu, from the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi, from the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi, from the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of uh, uh, Gamali, from the tribe of Asher, Sethur, the son of Michal, and from the tribe of Naphtali, Nahbi, the the son of Zophsi, from the tribe of Gad, Güel, the son of Machi. Uh, these were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and Moses also called Hoshea the son of Nun, that's Joshua. Mo- Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negeb and go up into the hill country, and see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage. Bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes so they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of zin to rahab near lebo hamath they went up to the negeb and came to hebron ahaman sheshai and talmai the descendants of anak were there hebron was built seven years before zoan in egypt and they came to the valley of eshcol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between two of them they also b- uh, brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshcol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land, and they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, and the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb... Quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land. Through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all of the people we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Chapter 14, the story continues. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses And Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Honey, only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all of the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land they have heard that that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger, an abounding and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. So, I mean, this is an amazing story. Let me give you a cross-reference to this real quick from the epistle of Jude. Jude uh, writes, this is Jesus' half-brother, Verse 5, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. He destroyed those who did not believe. So here in Numbers 13, this isn't teaching us about vision casting. No, ultimately this story teaches us to repent and believe the Lord. Repent and believe his promises. Now, we don't have the same exact set of promises that the children of Israel had at this time in real human history. At this time, God rescued them, delivered them by a mighty hand out of slavery in Egypt and literally defeated Pharaoh and and judged him and judged Egypt and left Egypt in a bad spot. Judge them for their wickedness, for their evil, for their murders, for all of the terrible things that they had done, for their idolatry, right? And he brought his people out of Egypt, and they're, they're now in the wilderness in between Egypt and Canaan. And what happens? The majority of the congregation doesn't believe. And you say to yourself, how is that possible how is it possible that they saw the plagues right that they crossed the red sea on dry ground they saw the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire they saw the smoke of the lord's presence on mount sinai they heard the voice saying thou shalt have no other gods before me they saw the lightning and heard the thunderings how could they not believe answer seeing is not believing seeing is not believing that's not what that's not how we're raised from the dead that's not uh, god has to raise us from the dead spiritually and even if you see miracles happen that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be brought to repentance And childlike faith and trust in God. So, who had that simple childlike faith in this story? Well, Moses and Aaron for sure. But so did Joshua and Caleb. And was that not Caleb's report? Come on, we can take these people. Look at what God has done for us. He's going to give them to us. They have no protection. We can trust the Lord. And the people sin against God. And what does Moses do? He prays for God to be merciful and to pardon and forgive the sins of the children of Israel. And God, in his steadfast love, in his mercy, pardons them and forgives them their iniquity. And he also executes a temporal punishment. The punishment being that they will not, those who have not believed, who have despised him, who have argued against him, will not enter the promised land. The story has nothing to do with vision casting. Absolutely nothing to do. It has to do with repentant faith and trust in God. So here's the promises that we have. Okay, You and I don't have promises regarding temporal promise, uh, promised lands or things like that. No, the promises that we have from God are these, that God is merciful and forgiving and just, and that for the sake of Jesus Christ and his bitter sufferings and death, we now have peace with God through the shed blood of Christ on the cross for our sins. That God, just like he pardoned these ungrateful people, is offering you full and complete pardon of your sins and is offering you forgiveness for your rebellion and wickedness against him. Because the thing you have in common, the thing I have in common with the children of Israel, is that daily we sin much against God. Daily we we despise him and his word. Daily we rebel against him and don't trust him. And yet, he has many promises that he gives us. But chief among them, the one that really matters is that our sins are forgiven because of Christ's penal substitutionary death for us on the cross. That's the good news that we are called to proclaim. And if you look in the New Testament, that's the message that they obsess about. The apostles constantly point us back, not to the pillar of cloud. They point us back to Jesus Christ and him hanging naked, bleeding dead on a cross for our sins and raised again on the third day for our justification. Announcing the good news that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them, right? Offering us full and complete pardon. Let's focus on those promises. So when you, dear Christian saint, look in the mirror of God's law and the reflection comes back, sinner, and it comes back sinner, and you know that you just aren't measuring up. We have the sure and perfect promises in the Scriptures that says that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ so that God sees us as saint, sees us as perfectly righteous. And though we march towards our own temporal death here on this side of Christ's return, And though death stalk you and eventually overcome you, whether you go out bloody in a car crash or go out sad through a long languishing disease, doesn't matter. All of that seeing is not believing because God's promises are more real than your temporal sufferings and your temporal death. God's promises are more real than that. And his promise to you is that he has forgiven and pardoned you in Jesus Christ. This is truly good news. And God's word is real. He can be trusted. He will see you through. And don't let the circumstances of your life, the sufferings, the setbacks, the diseases, the pain, the slow slide into death and into the grave be more real than what God has promised because that's what happened with the spies who went to spy out Canaan. What they saw was more real than what God promised. As a result of it, it showed and exposed their lack of faith and trust in the merciful and kind God who had stolen them out of slavery, had redeemed them, had taken them out, set them free, and was sending them to the promised land. They saw the promised land full of enemies, and those enemies were bigger and more true than what God had promised. Caleb said, no, God, what he said is more true than those enemies. They have no defense. And who was right? Caleb was. Caleb was. Anyway, I do all of that. Let's throw some good Bible teaching in here because it doesn't get any better on the Chris Songson front. In fact, he's going to start mangling this text like you wouldn't believe. Um, He's already well on his way. We continue
2: make a commitment to me. I need need you to commit to be here for the next five weekends. And I I know we're all busy. We have schedules and whatever. But if you can rearrange your schedule and make sure you're here for one of the services, it's that important that we hear about where we're going as a church, all of our campuses and our services, where we're going in the next couple of years as a church. Matter of fact, you're going to see this phrase quite a bit. It's 432. 432 is uh, is the name of our kind of, our initiative, our sort of campaign, our promised land, if you will. It's called 432. Because in the next couple years we're going to do amazing things. But 432 comes from a scripture in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. This is the very first church that was ever created. Here's what it says. Read it out loud with me. All the believers were united in what? Come on, I want everybody, I want them to hear us all over. All the believers were united in? And... Mine. Okay. Now, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. They didn't feel like what they owned was their own. So they shared everything they had. That very first church that was ever established. Why they rock and rolled so well? Why they did amazing things? Because they were all of one heart. They were all of one mind, and they shared their resources, and God did amazing things. Well, we're going on a two-year journey. We're going to talk about it for the next couple weeks of all the amazing things. Hide your wallets things that God's going to do as we put our hearts and our minds together and live a life of generosity. Check out some of what God's going to do. I want you to take a look at this video. Here's what's coming up for the next couple of years. Check it out.
0: Now, I want to point something out. All of that stuff from Numbers 13, well, the few verses that he ripped out of context, creates the pretext for, well, the vision that he's about to cast, as if somehow that tells us the story of how to cast Vision and how we can achieve the our, our promised land together as a church community. Thirteen years ago, my wife
2: and I were praying and asking God for the direction of where he wanted to take us, and we believed that he wanted us to plant a church in Corona, California, and, and so we did on March 29th, 1998. Uh, we started the church with just a handful of people and I remember that very first service wondering if anybody's going to show up and they did. We packed out the house. It was, it was pretty incredible. And then a short time later that grew to two services. And then from there we, uh, went to Citrus Hills intermediate school. We continued to grow. Uh, And then a short time later, we purchased some land uh, on the corner of Maine and Magnolia, 6.2 acres, and uh, we built some metal buildings to start. And then from there, we built a more permanent facility, uh, and uh, man, just continued to grow. We started another campus we call now Venue 2, and that's growing and doing incredible. Uh, We recently started another campus uh, in Riverside. God has just blown our expectations. We have grown numerically. We've grown spiritually. And most of all, people have found Christ, have been baptized, and are walking with God. It has been an incredible, incredible journey. But I believe that God's not done with us, that God is going to do even more. And I am so excited about the project and the uh, initiatives that God has put in our heart, something we're calling 432, which is living lives of extravagant generosity. Mm Mm-hmm. So God's put this in their heart, apparently. Extravagant generosity for our family, extravagant generosity for our community, and extravagant generosity for our world. Now, what do we mean by those three uh, areas that we talked about? Let me help break it down. Uh, We want to do more for our youth and our children than we've ever done before to really just grow them spiritually and bring out the best in them and just really enhance those ministries. We want to do some great things at our Main Street campus. We want to build a balcony which would allow more seating and give us the opportunity to reach more people. For our Venue 2 campus, they currently meet at a temporary facility at a high school. We'd love to move them into a permanent facility and then just continue to enhance our Riverside campus as well. Uh, In addition to extravagant generosity for our family, we want to continue paying down uh, some of the debt that was originally incurred when we bought the land and built the building. And, And then, of course, just the general operations to keep things moving along. The second part of our two-year project is extravagant generosity for our community. We want to connect our church to public schools by reaching out to the middle schools, the high schools, the elementary schools, putting on public school assemblies, uh, bridging the gap between the church and the state. Uh, The second part of extravagant
0: generosity for our community uh, is for the disadvantaged bridging the gap between the church and the state, huh? We want to reach and meet the needs of those that are hurting.
2: Finally, is that building campuses and adding more campuses. We want to continue to grow into other communities, not just a couple campuses in Corona and maybe one in Riverside. We want to continue to expand out. Our mission is to reach unchurched people. That's what we want to do. And it doesn't matter if it's in Corona or Riverside or any other community. The third part of that project is extravagant generosity for our world. In the next two years, we want to really raise the bar with Solera. Solera is a ministry that this church started a few years ago to
0: invest in and coach pastors and church leaders nationwide. So they're going to coach pastors and church leaders nationwide to be just like them. The problem is, is if you've listened to this uh, program for any length of time, Chris Songson is, well, somebody whom we've been reviewing sermons for, for years, I think I have yet to hear him rightly handle a single biblical passage. This is a guy who I'm fairly convinced is not capable of rightly handling God's word. At least he's shown no aptitude along those lines. So now he's going to go and spread this diseased, false form of Christianity all over the place. Great. Great. And then the
2: second area is affiliates, and those are churches where there's a strategic partnership and and we help them uh, to be more effective in reaching their own community. And then finally, uh, it has to do with global outreach. We did a water well this year and a 1,500 people a day are receiving clean water. I want two years from now for six or seven or 8,000 people to uh, be receiving clean water because of what this church did. I want to continue to reach thousands of more people by feeding them and by clothing them and by helping them. Uh, what we did in Haiti, what we did in Japan, what we've done around the world, I want to continue to do that. That's extravagant generosity for our world and we as a church are called to that and we must do that this whole uh uh, project if you will is called 432 for a reason because it's from acts uh, chapter 4 verse 32 where it says that all the believers uh, were in one heart and with one mind and they shared everything that they had that's what really needs to happen for us as south hills church to accomplish all these incredible things is that we have to be of one heart one mind
0: what about the great commission go and make disciples of all nations baptizing in the name of the father son yeah it sounds like they're really distracted away from the real mission of the church for whatever this vision thing is. And we have to share what we have. Challenging people here at South
2: Hills, all of us, to be a part of this thing called One Fund. And One Fund, you take your regular giving, like my wife and I's regular giving for the next two years. What would we give normally? And then what would be our best gift in addition to that? And then come up with that one number. Maybe we would
0: tap into stored wealth or maybe we would tap into... Tap into stored wealth. Boy, this so this is all about... We're going to read a verse, a passage out of context, talk about some vision that God has apparently laid on our heart, and the bottom line is, well, you need to tap into stored wealth because we need a lot of money to pull this vision off. Uh-huh. Sell something we don't
2: need or whatever, but for uh, all of us at South Hills Church, it is going to be so important that everybody's on board. It can't just be a handful of people. Everybody needs to be on board, and everybody needs to say, okay, God, what is it that you're calling my family to do? Don't just do what's doable. That's really easy. Like, oh, okay, the next two years, we can do that. But to really dig deep and say, God, but what do you want us to do? How do you want us to sacrifice? How do you want us to give generously at a level that we've never done before? Because at the end of the day, here's what's going to happen. Two years down the road, we're going to raise the money that's necessary. I believe it with all of my heart. Uh, we're going to accomplish some incredible things together. We go on another incredible journey together. I think, uh, thirdly, is that it's going to be a spiritual Incredible spiritual time for all of us at South Hills because we're going to really just go on this journey of accomplishing great things together, trusting God and sacrificing at whole new levels. And I believe more than anything that as we trust God and move towards this extravagant generosity, uh, we're going to see some incredible spiritual growth as we follow God in this way. I just, I
0: really feel. So if we follow God in this way, we're going to see incredible spiritual growth. Yeah, none of this is taught in the Bible weird, huh? So this is the means for incredible spiritual growth. Follow the vision that God has given Chris Songson.
2: Hmm. That 432 is just going to be one of the greatest times of Southwest Church. Awesome. Yeah. And that's just a little snippet of what's going to be coming, and we're going to talk about that for the next few weeks. Now, the goal really is is that our church budget, just so you know, is about $4.5 million in a two-year period. It takes $4.5 million to run the church. and
0: uh, $4.5 million dollars a year to run a small, medium-sized megachurch. Like I've said, this is the most expensive and probably the most wasteful way of quote doing church as if they're really doing it because they they in order to keep the numbers uh, of people necessary you know keep growing and filling the those who leave via the back door because of the shallowness I mean th- th- this 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 idea that this is even a church I mean is laughable they're not teaching sound doctrine they're scratching itching ears and they're teaching all law and no gospel. And on top of it, now Chris Songson, well, he's receiving dreams and visions from God that everybody needs to get behind, and the way they get behind it is by opening their wallets. Uh-huh. Uh
2: huh. I know some of us like, wow, it's a lot of money. It is, but uh, it's three campuses. Uh, and some of us are kind of floored by that, but it takes four and a half million dollars. We want to do this. Not, we want to do this. We want to double that in the next two years so that we could accomplish the things that we just talked about. That nine million over the next two years is what we're wanting to do. And the exciting thing is, is that God put it in my heart. I began to share it with the staff eight, nine months ago. And man, they rallied together.
0: Yeah, God put it in his heart. Mm Mm-hmm
2: the board, we got together, we rallied together, we have met, are you ready for this one? We have met with over 100 leaders in our church, volunteer leaders sitting right next to you. Volunteer leaders one-on-one to talk about what we're doing. And we've met with over 300 volunteers, nearly 500 people we've met with in our three campuses over the last uh, four or five months and every single one of them are saying the same thing. We are not going to shriek back like the Israelites. We at South Hills are going to march forward, and we're going to do something absolutely amazing in the next couple of years.
0: Yeah, they're going to take the promised land, man. Is that exciting or what?
2: These people are sitting right next to you. It's not just me. These people are sitting next to you. And that's why people are cheering, because they've already talked with me one-on-one or in a group setting. Some of you are hearing this for the very first time, but we're excited about what God's going to do. And check out Romans chapter 12, verse 11. I want you to read it out loud with me. It's coming up on the screen. Let's take a look at it. It says this. Everybody together. Never be lacking. in. Together means in one accord. It just means you read together. It's really interesting. Ready, Ready? One, two, three. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Zeal and fervor. Aren't you glad that you belong to a church with leaders and volunteers who haven't lost their zeal and fervor to do something radical in this world? Is that exciting? That's the kind of church that we belong to. You know, and just to kind of break down the video. Yeah,
0: to do something radical in this world. Yeah, that's what the Great Commission's all about.
2: You, know, you just saw, we want to take that, we want to take those offices up there and build a flowing balcony. We're going to bust that out. It was built originally that way. We want to take our V2 campus that meets at Santiago High School. It's growing. And man, it's very young adult. There's a lot of people in their 20s there. And we want to take that in the next year or two. We want to explode that to a permanent campus. We want to add four or five or six more campuses and communities that we've never been in. We want to, we want to create, we're creating assembly, uh, school assembly teams that in every community that we end up going into, we're going to do public schools and build relationships with the schools. And our goal, ready for this one, is to speak to junior high, high school, and and elementary school to 250,000 kids in the next two years our church will speak to. Is that pretty exciting or what? Come on. We want to we make a difference in this world. We want you to you
0: make a difference in this world. No, this doesn't sound exciting at all. It, it, this sounds like 200,000 children are at risk of being basically sucked up in and taught a false Christianity at the hands of Chris Songson and his minions.
2: <sighs> what we want to do, we want to provide enough water wells that 10,000 people a day are receiving clean water because of this church. You don't know what that's like because you haven't been to Africa and stood there at the water well. You go there once, you'll forever be changed. I've been there. Okay, you know what else we want to do? We want to feed, feed about 280,000
0: people over the next two years. Do you know what? what about preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? Is that part of this? You know what that means? 383
2: children a day are going to receive food and the necessary nutrition because of this church. 383 a day over the next two years is that exciting or what that's what we want to do now to me all of that stuff we want to do around the world how we want to help the homeless right here in our own cities how we want to build how we want to grow how we want to help people save marriages and all that that's exciting to me save marriages what about save people from hell and we at South Hills Church, we we, we we realized this. The Israelites had a huge opportunity called the promised land, and they shrieked back.
0: They had a huge opportunity called the promised land, and they shrieked back. So now we're going to allegorize the promised land. And and now the vision that apparently God gave to Chris Songson, well, that's, well, the folks over there at south hills church and corona that's their promised land and and they can either shriek back the way the children of israel did or they can just go and take it
2: and god has put our own promised land right in front of us and i'm telling you right now at south hills church we will not shriek back that's not going to happen here we are going to march for it i went to a, a thursday i was in new jersey and uh um just hanging out no i went to a I went to New Jersey to go speak for Verizon. I've spoken for them several times, but it's been a while. And they invited me to their national headquarters. And if you've ever been there before, maybe you have, it is huge. It's the second largest building in America, only next to the Pentagon. It's massive. Now, if you have Verizon, you know where your bill's going. I saw it three days ago. It is a massive building. It's got a fitness center in there. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Second largest building in America next to the Pentagon. Amazing. So I pull up and all this stuff and I go in there and uh, hanging out and stuff. And uh, um, then I get ready and they they take me to this one area where they have this auditorium and they had cameras everywhere. And they had told me, they said, well, we don't don't know if we told you this, but not only are you speaking to this crowd, but it's being simulcasted to all of the world. Uh, People are watching it. Executives in the Philippines, India, everywhere on Verizon are watching this right now.
0: And I said, okay, so they take me Just so you know, Chris Songson, his day job is motivational speaker.
2: Back over to this area uh, behind stage before we get ready for the speaking. And they sit down and they said, okay, do you have a problem with makeup? And I said, I only wear it on Fridays, but let's let's do this. And um, so they put this little thing on me and they start doing it. And this is what the lady says. She says to me, we're going to have to, you know, kind of do something with your lips to make your teeth look smaller. I'm like that. Just cost you more money, lady. Um, my bill's going up, and so I go there. Now they are fired up. They laid off. They have laid off in the last two years six thousand people just in this one certain department of Verizon. But I'm telling you the the, uh, uh, the people are fired up they casted a vision, they showed a video this is where we're going, this is the technology that's coming out, they gave a two year plan just like we're giving a two year plan and they got all fired up and people were cheering and I was like, oh my god, these people are electric you know, and then the vice president of Verizon wanted to see me, so they are like, the vice president wants to see him. I'm thinking, oh great, you know, what I do wrong so I went over there, he's like, oh that was great, that was amazing and he goes, and then he tells me, he shows me on the board, here's what we're doing they are fired up about the next two years they got a huge mountain to climb they're fired up. They're leading the charge. They're absolutely flat out excited about phones. <laughs> you know where I'm going with, aren't you? Phones. I'm, right now, the energy that was in that room was 10 times more than the energy in this room about phones. What are we fired up about? We're fired up about changing lives. We're fired up about adding campuses. We're fired up about feeding children. That's more exciting than phones.
0: What about preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins? Isn't that more exciting than phones and feeding children?
2: There you go. Now. Here's the deal. I want you to write this down. If you're taking some notes, you should be. Here we go. Focus on our vision rather than obsessing over our obstacles. Hey, that's what visionaries do. And South Hills Church is a visionary church. We are a church that focuses on the vision, not on the obstacles. Hey, that was the problem with the children of Israel, remember? The million people. Oh, miracle at the Red Sea. Miracle with food. Miracle with water. Miracle cloud, fire. Uh Uh-oh, big obstacle called the Warriors. Some of them said, let's go back to slavery. They actually said that. Can you believe that? Because the obstacle was, they weren't focused on the vision. Hey, you know when the pilgrims came here 400 years ago? They landed the very the very first year. They landed on the uh, uh, there was nothing here. They landed on America and they established a town. The second year they uh, they established a town council. The third year the town council said, "Let's go five. Let's build a road five miles in inland." It was the first road ever in America they were going to build it five miles in. The fourth year, the citizens rose up against the town council and said, that's too dangerous. We can't go into that forest for five miles. Here's what I find that is absolutely ironic. In just four short years, they went from venturing across thousands of miles of ocean to not being willing to venture a few miles on land. You know what? We at South Hills, we've seen God do amazing things in the last few years. Unbelievable. Blown my mind. And there's no way that the God who did all of that can't take care of this thing called 432 if we wrap our arms together.
0: There's no way. We can do this. You can do it or God's going to do it? Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of slipping in and out of who's doing this again? I know that God's called us to do it, and I know that
2: we can now. Let's get really blunt and really honest because a lot of you are volunteers and leaders and you've heard some of this stuff before. But let me tell you something. There are two major concerns that some of us might be having. And by the way, if you're a guest, you might be thinking, did I come on the wrong weekend? Absolutely not. Because you came to watch a church that's excited about changing the world and you can be a part of that family.
0: Mm, changing the world. That's our mission. Hmm. Who knew? And we invite
2: you to be a part of that family. You're here on the right day. Now, here's the two major concerns that I know that some of us might be thinking. Number one major concern is, is this too much? You know, I mean, $9 million, doubling the budget. Is that too much? Okay. I understand that. I'm a little nervous myself. Come on. You know, but I think that's where God wants us to live, just outside of our comfort zone that if he doesn't show up, we're sure to fail.
0: Oh, okay. You got a verse that says that.
2: We live in our comfort zone then we don't need him let's live outside of that
0: I'm a, I'm a little so let's push ourselves outside of our comfort zone you know basically risk everything constantly so that god has to show up to save our bacon uh-huh
2: but you know what we have a board the bible says to count the cost calculate the cost jesus talked about that two thousand years ago so always calculate the cost I, and our board sat down, and we thought about how many people we have. We consulted with some good friends of
0: ours that are in Chicago. So Jesus, when he said count the cost, he was basically talking about, you know, make sure you have a good and expensive vision and that you live outside your comfort zone so that you can count the cost. That doesn't even make any sense.
2: In Atlanta, and they helped us figure out you know what? You got enough people in this church and and, and everybody sacrifices generously. Not only will God bless them for that sacrifice of generosity, but also you guys can do some incredible things in the next two years. Yeah, we calculated the cost. We can do this. We didn't just, oh, this sounds good. We didn't come up with this last night. Yeah, wow, that was fast. No, no, no. (laughs) Filmed all that, did all that in just minutes. Got the little 70s band out there. We're ready to go. No, 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 no. We've been calculating the cost for months. This might be just the first time you're hearing about it. Second thing you might be asking is, is this, uh, uh, is this the right timing? Hey, Chris, we're in an economy crunch. Last few years have been pretty bad. I understand that. I thought the same thing when the Lord put it in my heart. And I began to share it with the staff and the board and the leaders and the volunteers. I began to ask the same question. Is this, God, can we afford it? But I remember getting down on my knees just like this as the leader of this church. And I remember praying, God... Is this the right timing? Is this the right timing?
0: And then God thundered from heaven, yes, this is the right timing. I wouldn't have spoken to your heart if it wasn't. And as
2: clear as you can hear my voice right now, without a doubt, this is what God said to me, Chris. I'm not shaken by the economy, and I am not stirred by the market and what they're saying.
0: Tack this onto the end of your Bible. We're now getting direct revelation from God. U.S. South Hills, you do
2: what God's called, what I've called you to do, and I will take care of the rest. I am not moved by those things.
0: I'm- mm, wow, a wow. powerful prophetic word. Did you learn this technique from Patricia King? I'm curious. Bigger than that. And you know what else is exciting to me? I went
2: with that confidence, and I talked to our to 500 people in our church, and every one of them concurred the same thing to me. Chris, our God is bigger than that. This is what God's called us to do. Let's go after it, and let's do it.
0: Is yeah, it- Notice it's outside of the Great Commission. They, they, in fact, they can just put the Great Commission to rest. That doesn't apply to them. They've got more important, direct revelatory work to do, and that's why they're casting vision. $9 million worth, too. This
2: ain't just one person. This is hundreds of people that have said, you know, if this is what God's called us to do, then we're going to do it. You know what I love about our church is this. Our history of our church has always been this spirit right here. This is important. The history of our church has been that we don't tell God how big the mountain is. We tell the mountain how big our God is.
0: Wow, that sounds powerful. Wow, yeah. That's been the history of our church. And that's what we've all now. The history of your church is Bible twisting, narcissism, complete obfuscation, not teaching sound biblical doctrine, scratching itching ears, and mangling God's word in the process.
2: Always been as a church, and that's what God's called us to that next level to say, Okay, God, where are you going to take us now? Walt Disney, when he had the idea of Disney World. And uh, he had this idea, they put all the plans together, and he died before it was opening day. It was sad. But on opening day, Walt's wife was standing there with some of the executives, and someone was up there doing a speech for the grand opening and the cutting of the ribbon. And uh, one of the executives leans over to Walt's wife and says, man, I sure wish Walt could have seen this. And her response, Walt's wife was, he did. That's why it's here. Because it was in his heart. And it was in his mind, and it was in his vision. And that's what God gives us, all of us, in our hearts and our minds and our vision. That's what God has put inside of hundreds of people at this church. You might be hearing it for the first time, but there's hundreds sitting next to you that have not hearing this for the first time. And we are fired up, and we're going to wrap our arms around this because God has put, like he did in a Walt Disney heart, God has put a vision that we're not going to just create fun for the world at a place called Disney World. We're going to change the world,
0: and we're going to do more in the next two Yeah, you're going to change the world. That's not the Great Commission.
2: Two years in this church that this church has ever done in its history, and we're going to do it in 24 months. And God's going to help us to do that in a big way. Now, this is the cool thing. We don't have to do this. We get
0: to do this. Did you hear what I said? Well, if God told you to do it, you have to do it. Otherwise, you're disobeying God. We don't what? We don't.
2: No, we what? Okay, check this out. Think about this for a moment. Now listen, this is important. I don't want you to miss this. Focus, 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 focus. It's really important. Go to work this week and ask people at your work, hey, are you part of an organization that you're all contributing and everybody's sacrificially giving and you're partnering together? And you're going to change marriages and change lives and feed 383 kids a day and help 10,000 people a day get clean water. Are are you part of a? Are you part of an organization that is literally changing not only our city, not only our our, our country, but our world? Are you part of that organization? I promise you, that's not the tr- the case. They're not. We get to do this. This is an honor and a privilege and, and, and to wrap our arms together and say, okay, God, whatever you have for us, God, we are going and we are going big. Now, here's the big idea and the final thought I want to give you before we do something very special today. We're going to conclude the service very special. This is very important. The greatest obstacle isn't the increase of our finances. It is the increase of our faith. That's the greatest obstacle. Let me, let me tell you something, folks. This is important. The greatest obstacle isn't the finances. It's not like, listen, listen. It's not like God, you know, who created the whole earth thing in six days, is up there in heaven going, nine million. I don't know what you guys are thinking. You're on your own. That's not a big deal to him. He knows it can be done. It, we, can, we can surpass that if you want the truth. The biggest obstacle isn't, isn't the increase of finances. The biggest obstacle is the increase of our faith. Matthew chapter 9 verse 29, 2000 years ago, Jesus said these words and it's relative to 2012. Here's what Jesus said. According to your faith, I'll do it for you. You right here and you right there and you and you.
0: Now he's ripping Jesus out of context. According to your faith, I'll do it for you. Who was Jesus talking to in that, uh, in that sentence? Who? You, and you, and you, and you, and all of us together. He says, according
2: to... We weren't there. So how could he have been saying that to us? To your faith, I'll do that for you. Now, you know what he means? You know what he's saying by that? He's saying, to whatever level your faith is, I'll meet you there. Check this out.
0: No, that's not what he's saying.
2: Jesus is saying, "If, if your faith is this big, fine. I'll meet you there. But if your faith is this big, fine. I can meet you there.
0: No, that's not what he was saying.
2: According to your faith, I'll meet you wherever you want to go. If you want to just do this in the next couple of years, fine, I'll meet you there. But if you want to accomplish this together in the next couple of years, fine, I can meet you there. According to your faith, I will do it for you. That's what Matthew 9.29 says. Isn't
0: that awesome? We have, a, we have a God that's... No, that is not what Matthew 9.29 says. If you have your Bible, let's take a look at Matthew 9.29. But we're going to do this by putting it back into context. The three... Three... Uh, most important rules for sound biblical interpretation is context, context, context. Here's what it says. Matthew 9, verse 27. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. Hmm. Jesus was talking to two blind men. Apparently... um. Chris Songson is hoping that everybody he's talking to is spiritually blind and biblically ignorant so that he can make it sound like Jesus here is saying, Hey, this has to do with our vision. And if you have big enough faith, Jesus is going to meet you there and make our big $9 million vision happen. So it's all up to you and your faith. Well, what happens if they don't achieve their financial goals? $9 bucks for their vision over the next two years well you know what that means is that the folks there at south hills didn't have enough faith it's the only conclusion you can come to based upon this false teaching of his
2: says i can meet you wherever you want me to meet you small dreams or big dreams either way i can meet you right there
0: jesus wasn't talking about small dreams big dreams or any dreams at all
2: matthew nine twenty nine. the biggest problem the biggest obstacle the biggest challenge isn't the increase of our finances doubling the budget in two years is not the challenge the challenge is our faith. It's our faith. So here's the deal. For the next few weeks, we're gonna, we're gonna talk more about what God has. And here's, here's what I need you to do. Ready? I need you to make a couple commitments. Okay? We've been working on this. By the way, just an FYI, we've been working on this since June of last year. We've been working on this for almost seven months. Now, understand something. I need just a few things from you. Number one, I need you to be here for the next five weekends because we're talking about all of this. And we're going to conclude it in the very first week of March with what we're going to call Commitment Sunday, Commitment Weekend. I need you to be here for the next five weeks. Second thing is, I need everybody to be in a small group. Just for February. If you don't want to be in a small group after February because people smell, then fine. But be in a small group for the month of February, please. If you did not sign up, go to the 432 booth in the lobby and just say, get me in a small group and they'll take care of it for you. Everybody, just for one month, just one month, The third thing is, on your way out, in just a moment, we're going to do something special. On your way out, you're going to receive two things. They're going to be kind of together. One is a 432 booklet. This 432 booklet has all the information that you saw in the video. Please, please read through it. Read every word. It'll only take you five minutes to read through it, but read through it. It has all the information. And then, it also has the small group curriculum in there. You can take this to your small group. You know what else it has? It also has the uh, uh, notes. You won't be getting notes for the next few weeks for you to take notes on. This is your notepad for the next few weeks. This is your small group curriculum and all you need to do is bring this to your small group and bring it to church for the next few weeks. This is your second Bible. Everybody get it? Gotta bring this. Otherwise you're gonna be without, this is it. We're hanging on to this, it's like glue to us. We're hanging on to this thing for the next few weeks. We're gonna hang on this together. Included with that is a commitment card. I'm not asking you to do anything with the commitment card, but just read it and begin to pray, God, over the next two years, what would you call our family, our uh, husband and wife, our kids, me as a single person, whatever, God, what would you call us to do over the next two years? The most radical, sacrificial generosity that we've ever done in our life over a two-year period. God, what could we do if we sacrifice? And I want you to begin, all I'm asking you to do is to pray about it. And then on the first weekend of March, we'll come together and we'll have commitment weekend And we'll believe God to do something absolutely amazing.
0: So then they're going to have a commitment weekend. You can bet that means financial commitment, money commitment weekend.
2: As we partner together. So here in just a moment, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to ask you to do this. All I'm asking you to do is say yes today. Yes, that you'll at
0: least pray, and yes, you'll say, "I'll pray with you. I'll pray for." four. This feels like a, you know, one of those. You ever been schnookered into attending one of those life insurance seminars or a seminar regarding timeshares? Yeah, this is like a soft close right here. This is like a manipulative sales technique.
2: Four thirty-two, and I'll pray for God's guidance in our family. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. In just a moment, I'm going to have you come up and you're going to re- grab one of these, those little two stations on this side and two stations on this side. And they got these little 432 keychains. Put it on your keychain and just let it be a reminder that you're a part of something that's bigger than yourself and you're going to pray for it. And you're just saying yes to praying about it. Then on your way out, you'll come up, you'll receive the keychain. Everybody got the instruction? In a moment, you'll come up and receive the keychain. You'll walk out. And when you walk out, you are going to receive this booklet and commitment card and start praying about it. So again, you're here for the next five weeks, get into a small group. You can do that in the lobby. You're going to grab a keychain, and then you're going to grab that on the way out now. And you're going to begin to pray about what God would have you to do. But here's the deal. I promise you this. In the ne- this, thing, this thing isn't about money, so don't walk out going, is the church all about money? You know how people say that all the time, you know, because we're feeding people. That would be a horrible thing. But uh, um, <laughs> think about it before you say anything. Uh, we make no apologies about it. We're going to raise nine million bucks. Number two, we make yes, absolutely. No apologies.
0: We can do it together. Second thing is, and at the same time, they're going to raise nine million bucks. Um, the people there are going to starve to death uh, because they're not being fed God's word in context. And in, even when Chris Anksen attempts to do it, he can't. He doesn't actually tell us what God's word really teaches because he doesn't even understand sound biblical theology and doctrine.
2: We're going to accomplish these goals together. How? incredible would that be at the end of
0: time? Two- I mean, how is this any different than, you know, liberal mainline denominations and their social justice gospel?
2: Two years to say, oh, we've we got eight campuses, we're feeding thousands of people, and look what God did, and we're changing lives on campuses and schools. and
0: Changing lives, but not bringing people to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Two completely different missions, by the way.
2: Kids and elementary kids, we're changing lives. Phenomenal things we want to do. That God's going to help us do that. But you know what that's really cool? Yeah, blame it on God. Is it's going to be a spiritual journey. You can't radically give, sacrificially, generosity. You can't do that and not change spiritually. The Bible says, wherever your treasure is, your cash, wherever your treasure is, your heart will be also. Your heart's always there. Wherever your treasure is, your heart will be also. We're going to grow spiritually. Your family's going to grow spiritually. You're going to be strong than you've ever been spiritually in the next two years as we go on this, what I call a generosity journey. Whenever we go on a journey of generosity, it always ignites spiritual growth. This thing is more about, more than just about money and more about accomplishing great things. It's about what God's going to do in us during the next couple of years. It's going to be amazing. I promise you, it's going to be the journey of lifetime. You'll look back and you'll remember this time forever. I promise you. I promise you. In just a moment, we're gonna have you come and get that and then head out. If you're on the if you're on the outsides there, if you could head towards the wall. If you're on the inside here, you can come to the center aisle and come this way. That would be great. That would help us. Uh so why don't you stand with me? And again,
0: we're gonna pray right No, you don't get to pray. Wow. So there you go, five weeks of vision casting there at South Hills and Corona, and uh, not off to a good start either, uh, complete mangling and twisting of God's word, off mission. We Apparently individual congregations could get their own individual unique vision and mission from God that get, exempts them from going and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. It exempts, exempts them from, well... Preaching the Word, teaching sound biblical doctrine, proclaiming Christ, you know, all of the stuff that goes along with what the church has been commissioned to do for these last 2,000 years. These new guys get brand new missions and visions from God, and uh, they are expensive. But, you know, hey, if you want to be part of something that's bigger than yourself and make a difference in the world, go knock yourself out. But uh, don't be surprised if at the end of it, when you stand before Christ, Jesus says to you, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Why? Because uh, changing the world is different than proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. Two competing missions. And I just don't see that how a house divided against itself can stand. I think Jesus might have said something about that one time or another. Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And just a reminder, this is listener-supported radio. Visit our website, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. We can't do what we do without your help. I don't have a a big mission or vision. My, uh, Quite frankly, the mission is to, well, do what we're supposed to do, proclaim Christ and Him crucified for our sins, sound biblical doctrine, and exercise discernment in comparing what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. All of those you can find in Scripture. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, as far as I can tell, I haven't had any direct visions from God, so it's this is just about doing what's written in the book, and we can't do it without your help. So visit our website, FindingForTheFaith.com, and support us financially. And thank you for your support. So what'd you think? You know, um. I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you, and the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.